we are going to have to figure out a way to do more with technology, more hybrid courses on campuses, for example. I still believe that we're going to want to have as many students on campus as we can reasonably afford to have. Uh, because you get something through on-campus experience that you don't get through online. Uh, and I'm a great fan of online, uh, but uh, you get something campus matters. Uh, but even on campus, we have to be able to use technology to teach in a more effective and more cost-effective way. Welcome to Ingenious U, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chellip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I am so delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. William Massey. Dr. Massey is an emeritus professor and former officer of Stanford University. He has been active as a teacher, researcher, consultant, and university administrator for more than 40 years. After gaining tenure in Stanford's Graduate School of Business, he served the Central Administration as Vice Provost for Research, Acting Provost, and Vice, Pro Vice President for Business and Finance during which time he developed and pioneered financial planning and management tools that have become the gold standard in the field. And then as professor of higher ed, working on resource allocation, cost containment, and academic quality assurance and improvement. He co-directed the Department of Ed's National Center for Post-Secondary Improvement, served on Hong Kong's University Grants Committee, and has been an honorary faculty fellow at the University of Melbourne since 2010. His most recent books, and I was just telling him that I just finished uh, his, his book that's hot off the press, Resource Management for Colleges and Universities. Uh, other books include Reengineering the University, How to Be Mission-Centered, Market Smart, and Margin Conscious, both uh, of which published by Johns Hopkins University Press. 2020 and 2016, respectively. Dr. Massey holds a PhD in economics, 
and MS in management from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a Bachelor of Science from Yale University. So welcome to our podcast, Bill. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to be here and thanks for having me, Melissa. Now, let me just jump right in because uh, I did, in fact, finish your book, The Resource Management for Colleges and Universities. And congratulations, first of all, on finishing it just out this month. Could you tell us uh, who the audience is for this book and why, why you wrote it? Well, the audience is uh, really uh, universities administ university administrators and faculty. That is provosts, uh, which you, you were one, <laughs> uh, department chairs, deans, uh, senior faculty involved in resource allocation, and also uh, presidents, uh, board members, government people involved with higher ed. But the real target is the people on the ground in universities who have to allocate their resources. And that's especially important in this time of uh, COVID-19. Boy, isn't that true? And I, I, I was telling you this before we went live on the air that uh, one, one of the many things I really appreciated about the book is how accessible it is. And having been a provost uh, and been in the trenches working closely with the CFO and the faculty in terms of resource allocation, uh, having, uh, having such practical and accessible uh, information like this is incredibly valuable. So uh, thank you uh, for providing this um, as a resource for all of us. Well, great, and, and thank you. You know, I've been dying to ask you, uh, knowing that I was going to, to be interviewing you, uh, given your experience and uh, all of the different work you've done um, over the course of your career, what your perspective is on what's happening right now in higher ed. And I'm not talking just about COVID. I mean, obviously, COVID is a huge game changer, but... Um, as, as we both know, higher ed was in a period of transition prior to COVID. So do you have a perspective on what you see happening now? And if you have a crystal ball looking forward? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. the crystal ball is a little cloudy, I must say, but I don't think I'm alone <laughs> in, in that. Uh, I think what has been happening for the last oh, 20 or 30 years is the impact of technology, real, really game-changing technology on universities. And uh, you know, don't have to go into that in detail. We all know about it, but it really is changing the fundamental production process in universities. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be online, nor do I think they should be. Uh, but it's uh, it opens up many, many opportunities for faculty to uh, do innovative uh, teaching kinds of things, and not to mention scholarship and so forth. I think what has happened now is that all of those trends are, are all of a sudden have been hit with a big, what we might call a dislodging event, namely the COVID problem. Uh, resistance, you know, higher ed is not known for the speed with which it uh, changes its internal operations. Uh, we're very nimble uh, intellectually, but not so nimble organizationally. But this is a dislodging event and uh, things are never gonna be the same. And so uh, I think we're at a tipping point. And uh, the uh, use of new management uh, resource allocation techniques is, I think an important part of the uh, solution to that problem. Uh, but I think it still remains up in the air as to whether universities basically become uh, mainly online, uh, mainly skills and abilities more so than, than we are now, stuff that's relatively uh, codified uh, and is you know, and terribly important, or whether we will retain 
uh, more as you know, a strong element of the humanistic uh, side of, uh, of 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 the of the mind. Uh, and boy, is that ever needed now? I think uh, what we're seeing in this uh, in this political crisis, and whichever side of it you're on, uh, is the importance of the educated citizenry. That was mm -hmm. one of the founding objectives of higher ed, and uh, we uh, we need to do a better job on that. I think. Boy, I couldn't agree more. And that's, uh, I think, what you're, um, I, I don't know that I would say advocating for, but what you're suggesting is a, a helpful uh, way to think about the future and also the value that higher ed can perhaps play um, as we go forward. Um, let, let me ask you, if, if one visits your website, and I do want to give a shout out to your website, which is williammassey.com. Yep, is that right? That's right. One word, williammassey.com. Which is, which is great. It's easy to remember. So <laughs> <Right. laughs> one of your pages describes your career trajectory. And I love the way you've, um, you've described that as the arc, the arc of your career. And I'm, I would imagine that the way, especially because you've also been a professor of higher ed, so you've been, you know, you've been in the business of studying and teaching and researching about this, this uh, work that we're about. And so I, I imagine that your thinking about higher ed has evolved quite a bit over the arc of your career. Are there some key forces or events that have played an especially critical role in the evolution of your own thinking? Uh, yes, I, I would say so. Um, I started off as, as you know, as a uh, business school professor. I got my PhD. I, I became an assistant professor at the Sloan School at MIT, then moved on to Stanford after a couple of years and uh, was 12 years in the business school there. Uh, and uh, this was sort of working up through the chair, assistant associate full professor, eventually was briefly an associate dean of the school. But anyway, I, I was steeped in the business of management. Not the management of business only, but the business of management, how you work, how you get things done. Always been a management scientist. I was a mathematical economist. So that was the first force. I developed both a set of tools, analytical tools, and a sense of how they get used in real organizations. Uh, and uh, then when I got the calling to go into the central administration at Stanford, I, of course, carried all that with me. And I met up with some very, uh, really influential colleagues, uh, Bill Miller, the Provost in those days, Dave Hopkins, uh, uh, who was on the staff as, as an analyst, analytical person. Anyway, we I started applying the stuff to Stanford, and that took off. Uh, we uh, we we accomplished some things, and we made some big differences in the way the university uh, operated, uh, and in particular, it got us out of a big uh, economic hole that hit just about that time. I won't go into the details on it, but anyway, so that got me involved in the, with the combination of the analytical toolbox and how universities really work, how you, at a, at a senior level, uh, how you manage universities. And that's where I've been ever since. I, after having been in the administration, I moved into the School of Education, became the professor of higher education uh, there. And uh, so that's when I began then full-time doing, doing teaching and research uh, in the area. And, and then uh, after that, I became a consultant. So the whole career has been taking a toolbox of analytical uh, thinking, uh, tools, things, things you can use, and uh, a sense of how things really work, not, in, not, not only in organizations in general, but in universities in particular. And I think that gave me a niche that uh, relatively unique 
which I have uh, been working in a very, 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 for a long time now. Well, and, and unique, but also so incredibly valuable, especially right now. And I have found being in higher ed for as long as I have, that there just are not very many tools um, that are available, particularly, particularly to academics who want to uh, really figure out how to, um, how to uh, allocate and uh, employ their resources in a way that is in keeping with the mission of the institution, but also ensuring the financial viability. And that's where in your new book, your framework, uh, which you have called academic resource modeling, I think is so, um, so helpful. So can we segue here? And I'd love to have you tell us about this framework. Um, obviously, we could probably spend a whole, a whole podcast, if not more, just talking about AR modeling, but um, maybe to give those who aren't familiar with it kind of a high, high level um, view and also why you why it is that you think this is such an effective approach especially right now sure um well first let me say that that the, the trick or the key factor in using these models uh is to be able to bring in the subjective the very important the mission-oriented stuff uh aspects of the university and also the market uh, as well as the financial, the danger and the reason that many faculty uh, uh, tend to resist the use of analysis, analytical models and so forth uh, uh, on the teaching side, they're fine with it in, in things like facilities and, uh, and, and so on in finance. But uh, when you get into the teaching and learning, uh, there's, there's concern, skepticism, and it's not unfounded. And the reason is, if you begin to get good information about what things cost, for example, and what thing and, and, and which kinds of activities make money and which don't. The fear is that making money will become the objective. Uh, mm -hmm. And that would really be terrible. That really would be terrible. Uh, so the emphasis that the, the work I've been doing right from the beginning uh, has been how do you balance the, the, the mission and the market with the financial stuff? Uh, and uh, early on, for example, I, I developed a theory of uh, not for profit entities was back in the late 1970s, uh, which uh, departed from the profit maximizing objective of business firms and structured uh, the formulation is that universities try to maximize their mission attainment. And what's mission attainment? Well, it's what you're trying to do. It's teaching and research, scholarship, high quality, uh, however you define it. So you're really trying to maximize your mission attainment, but subject to financial and market considerations. And there's a, a set of mechanisms that work there. And they have some implications that I write about in the book and other places that uh, make it uh, uh, make it a make it an operational concept as well as a conceptual one. So uh, so this is uh, what AR modeling is or academic resourcing modeling, uh, AR modeling for short, is making it's it's reducing that concept of mission maximization uh, subject to financial constraints, reducing that to practice uh, and providing the tools that allows faculty and, and others to really do it. Now, one, one more point there. Uh, the problem that universities have had in this space, in my experience, uh, has been that the decisions, the academic decisions that are made, the, the ones about how to configure your teaching and, and research tool with concentrate on teaching, 
Uh, they are made by, by the faculties, they have to be, because the faculty are the people that have the content knowledge. I mean, we mm -hmm. go deeply in our disciplines. And, and so we make the best decisions we know how to make on behalf of the students, uh, and, but consistent with the, you know, the, the, the requirements of the discipline and so forth. Uh, but what we don't have, what we're never taught as faculty members, uh, is the economic side of that. Is because every time you do something, uh, it's an activity and, 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 and it incurs costs. And so the paradigm uh, in, uh, in the academic department, say, in the, in the academic school, is that you try to get as much of a budget as you can from the central administration, uh, and, and then you spend that as wisely as you can. But you yourself don't make the trade-offs uh, about what is worth doing. Uh, you, you to yourself don't have much to say about the size of that budget. Uh, you can't deal with the trade-offs between budget size and academic performance, for example. That's not part of the faculty's remit. And even if it were, faculty members by and large don't know how to do it. They don't have the tools to do it. And so uh, what happens when people try to do that is financial analysts come in and try to make the trade-offs. That doesn't work for the reasons I described. Faculty are skeptical, and so the whole process uh, fails. But and, and there's no way that, uh, that a financial analyst can understand the academic discipline at a deep enough level to make those necessary trade-offs. However, with proper tools, faculty members can understand enough of the finance to make those trade-offs themselves. And that's what the name of this game, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do uh, in this new book and, and in, in, in the work that I'm, that I'm doing. So can you drill down a bit and talk about the kinds of decisions that these models will help, uh, help you make? Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's start with a particular context in mind. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's easiest, I think, to do that. And that context is that your college or university has developed what we call a budget gap. And a budget gap is simply a difference between your income and your revenue, or your revenues and your expenditures looking forward. And you know you can handle deficits for short periods, but you can't handle them for long periods uh, without going uh, without getting into financial difficulty. So the problem then is to close that gap. Uh, and this you, you do you try to cut costs on the administrative side and and. Uh, that's, that's great, you need to do that, but let's talk about the academic side purely. You, you're gonna have to do something on the academic side too, if the, back, if the gap is uh, large as, as the current gaps are. So there's basically four different kinds of things that you can do uh, structurally with the academic side of your institution. Uh, and they have to do with your portfolio of courses, adjusting that, and your portfolio of programs, degree programs or certificate programs or whatever. Uh, I should add, there's a couple of other things too. I mean, you can cut salaries, cut salary rates or uh, uh, cut benefits or uh, and, you, know, you can, you can uh, uh, make people work harder, increase teaching loads. I, those are not in this set of four. And there's, you may have to do some of that, but you don't want to if you can avoid it because there are good reasons for for having things uh, uh, you know, not driven strictly by a cost reduction. The four things that you can do then, uh, two on the course side and two on the program side. On the course side, you can prune your existing list of courses, prune your existing portfolio of courses. Uh, or the second one, 
is that you can redesign some of the courses so that they don't cost as much, uh, don't require as much inputs, uh, but you do it in such a way that if possible, you actually increase your learning rather than uh, decrease it. So that's the two on the course side. You can prune the courses. Uh, there's been a lot of proliferation uh, and you can sort of streamline the curriculum or you can redesign how you do the courses. On the program side, uh, programs of course are made up of courses, uh, but uh, you think about programs, uh, programs are the way your institution faces the marketplace. Students rarely come to a college for individual courses. Uh, they come because they want a particular program. Uh, and uh, so the first thing you can do on the program side is to rebalance, change the sizes of the programs in your existing portfolio. Uh, and uh, that's a pretty powerful lever, it turns out. You can adjust your, uh, your program offerings in ways that emphasize uh, uh, pro programs that, that lose less money or make money uh, than, than others. And then the fourth one uh, is you can create new programs. So you can find market niches that uh, you're, you have the capacity to get into, uh, or you can get that capacity uh, where the market looks favorable and which both are consistent, they're good degree fit with your existing objectives, uh, but provide some, 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 some new money. So those are the four things. Prune uh, courses, redesign courses, rebalance programs, existing ones, and create new programs. And so when we want drill down in, into those four, there's a whole lot of decisions that, that one has to make. Let me ask you, um, and I, I guess this is pushing you a little bit further, and you, there may not be an answer to this one, but I'm, I'm curious uh, if you have an opinion about which of those uh, tends to be a more effective, uh, effective approach. Right. Um, yes, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, it's the program side that really has the, the most, the most where you can gain the most. Uh, you could cut costs. Uh, that's you. You get that by pruning and by redesigning, and that may be very important to do. If, uh, and those are things you can do quickly, relatively quickly. So if your immediate cash flow problems, uh, you you can you can cut courses uh, out of your 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 list. Uh, lay off adjunct faculty, uh, don't uh, replace existing uh, regular faculty, things of that sort. Those, those things can happen fairly quickly, but you're limited. You can't cut your way uh, into a really strong position. You've got to do something on the revenue side. And that's where the uh, rebalancing and the creating new programs come in. Uh, I think for most institutions, starting with rebalancing uh, is, is where you're likely to get the quickest return. Uh, although you certainly want to be looking at the new programs as well. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. 
Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Bay Path University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. you know, there's a lot of urgency these days from the boards and elsewhere to cut back, to downsize, to reduce the expense side of the house. And, um, you know, we've seen some pretty drastic measures that are being taken by institutions of all sizes, types, um, including those that have been known to be financially uh, pretty stable and, and wealthy even. So as a former academic officer, but also a CFO, do you have any advice for senior leaders in terms of where to start? And I guess I'm, I'm really kind of rephrasing the question I just asked you in terms of um, the decision-making that flows from the, the AR modeling. Right. But, but I think that really the question here is how do you balance the cutting back with what you're suggesting, and that is the need to keep innovating, to keep looking for revenue um, and looking ahead. Okay, well, the first thing you need to do uh, is to figure out how big your gap is. Uh, you got to size the gap, as it were. Uh, and uh, uh, this is not so much an academic resourcing question as it is uh, a financial analysis question. Uh, but uh, you gotta you gotta look forward for several years, uh, get yourself a financial plan, and develop a scenario uh, showing uh, how much you know how many students you're going to have and so forth and so on. Looking forward several years, so the first thing to do is to size the gap, and then you make judgments about. Uh, and we can go by the way into detail on how you do any of this, but you have to make a judgment about how much you're going to try to get from the academic side and the and the non-academic side. Uh, and that's an iterative process, and there's reasonably under well understood techniques for doing it. Uh, looking back at the academic side, uh, now basically what you have to do is to mount a plan uh, that really that deals with all four of these things that I uh, that I have described. Uh, and uh, so you say to yourself, let's start with pruning courses, uh, and that's the quickest thing you can do. Uh, 
we've had decades of proliferation. You've got a really usually a typical a tangled web of inefficient uh, courses, small courses. I can't believe it when I look at, at the data from institutions, how many very small courses most of them have. So the first thing you do is you tackle that and you can do that uh, starting immediately. Uh, and you can get savings starting the next semester. Uh, and the question, what you need to look at there is first of all, the distribution of courses by course size. Uh, then uh, I, have, I have a little table that I have uh, designed and all of this stuff has stuff behind it, by the way. Uh, that where, imagine you put margin on one side, courses that uh, make money, courses that lose money, and then other courses in the middle on, on let's say the, uh, the vertical axis, the rows of the table. And then the importance of the courses to the discipline uh, and to the, the curriculum on the other, low, medium, and high. And so the first thing you do then is you look at your list of courses and you got to do the calculate cost calculations to find out which ones make and lose money. But you then have to consult internally with, with, uh, with your faculty and uh, about uh, which courses are, are especially high in importance, which courses are especially low, and then there's, then there's the broad median. So you have this table, if you can visualize it. The lower left-hand corner is the list of courses that have lower negative uh, uh, margins and of relatively low importance. That's not to say they're unimportant, but they have relatively low. Those are the ones you focus on uh, for, uh, for pruning. Uh, and uh, so you try to uh, uh, figure out how many of those we could, uh, we could eliminate from the curriculum, which is probably what you're doing anyway. But instead of having rules like cut all courses with fewer than five students, you actually have this table which looks at, at, because some small courses actually do make money. You can't just use right. size as a surrogate. Anyway, you have a directed process uh, that takes importance and uh, money into account. And out of that comes a list of courses. And then when you eliminate those, you then can eliminate the adjuncts or, or even traditional regular faculty. Uh, you don't need them to teach those anymore. Well, and it's obvious from what you're talking about that your framework places great value on data. Yes. and based decision making and you've just you've just described um, an example of some of the data particularly if you're looking at courses mm -hmm. and how to how to achieve some savings um, are there other data that you think are really important um, and need to be on the radar uh, for seniors if they're going to make good decisions particularly in this uncertain environment yeah well there's basically two kinds of data and then one kind of judgment. The judgments are about the importance to mission. And this is a quick word on that is the, this is in some ways the toughest thing to work with, but it's the most important. Uh, you really have to sit down and, and be prepared to say some academic things that you do are more important to your mission, to your curriculum than others. Uh, you can't be all things to all people. And I've, I've had conversations with university officers saying, oh, we can't, we can't make those judgments because we'll offend somebody on the faculty or we'll do this or that. Uh, you've got to make the judgment. You cannot uh, do this job if the gap is sized captured without uh, making those judgments. And if you consider everything of equal importance, then you know what dominates the decision? It's going to be money. If you've mm -hmm. taken importance off the table by making it all equal, it's going to be money. That's exactly mm -hmm. what you don't want to do. So that's the first thing is judgments about mission. 
and there are processes you can you can use that basically they're judgmental. Uh, the second kind of uh, data are market data, and there are ways now to learn about markets uh, uh, for your programs. Uh, things uh, short-term things like inquiry data from Google and so on. Uh, uh, long-term things, uh, you know, like uh, IPEDS uh, or Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs from graduates of programs. But the big one, the one where you can make the, a lot of progress pretty fast is the costs and revenues and margins of courses and programs and how they fit together. And what you really need uh, is a model uh, that uh, it, imagine and describe it this way. Imagine a table, a big table. It's got your programs on the columns, but each degree program is a column in this table, and each course uh, is uh, is a role. And in a good sized college, you may have you know twenty or thirty. Well, okay, Stanford has seventy or eighty programs, but uh, I don't know how many you have, but it's probably in double digits anyway. Uh, and, uh, and then courses, you can easily have hundreds, triple digits, maybe even uh, quadruple digits. So it's a big table. And in the table, there are enrollments. So basically, uh, you have course one and how many students from program one are enrolled and so forth. These data are in your system now. And it's just a matter of, I say just, it's not that easy, but it's not that hard. That's a matter of building a, a program or a model that extracts the data. If you have that crosswork, crosswalk between enrollments and program, then you can calculate the costs and margins because you also have the tuition revenue and so forth. The cost and margins for each course, for each program, it all comes right out. Uh, and mm -hmm. you can then start doing analyses uh, as to uh, like the kind that I was just describing. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it sounds so good. And again, reading your book, and this is how I've always approached academic resource allocation and planning. And, and yet I know that many, many people, colleagues who are provosts, who are deans, um, just don't go there. That's <laughs> so. right. No, it's not. It's, I mean, <laughs> we've never been trained. We've, the tools have never been available uh, before. They're available now, but uh, uh yeah, no, it's 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 not because people don't want to do the right thing. It's it's it has never occurred. They're not just they don't know how to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's and again, that's why your book is so valuable because it gives you um, it gives anybody uh, a, a place to start and a way to do this. And as you say, we all have this data at our fingertips. It's just a matter of knowing how to pull it out and and then organizing it. Um, right. Absolutely. Do, yeah. And. That's the data you've got uh, things you've, you've got data on, on a, a list of things in your systems and these are student enrollments and credit hours, of course, you've got data in your student registration system on the number of sections in each course. Uh, from the those data you can get you can calculate average class sizes uh, that's how you get at the notion of the small course and uh, and then you get financial variable variables you've got the cost generally the cost of a course depends on the number of sections uh to some extent on the number of students but more on the number of sections so basically uh you can add you can add students to courses that have excess capacity without incurring much of any cost 
Uh, and in other cases, uh, uh, you have to add sections and it does. So you need a model that sorts all that for you. Uh, and, uh, and then you also can get revenue. And if you got revenue and cost, then of course you get margins. Indeed. Now you've been a faculty member, as, as we've discussed, you have obvious great respect for the role of the faculty in the academic enterprise. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how to balance the role and interest of faculty to be involved in decision making, uh, especially in curricular matters with the constraints that so many schools are uh, living with right yes, now? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I, I as we've you and I have talked, and uh, the faculty are the university. <laughs> That's what we used to say at Stanford, and it is absolutely true. A university that doesn't have a good faculty or dedicated faculty is not going to be very much of a university. So we start with that. Uh, and we also start, or I start with the view that faculty work very hard. Uh, faculty care a lot. They care about their students. They care about their discipline. They care about each other. They care about their institution. Uh, so it's not a matter of uh, straightening up and flying right. <laughs> it's. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, where faculty have to come in, uh, we've already had an example. I've already given an example of it. When you're looking at, at pruning the courses in a department, and again, that needs to go back to that one, uh, it's only the faculty that can make the judgments about the importance. Uh, and so the faculty can, and can, can, can get the importance measure, but what they can't get by themselves is the, uh, the economic part of it, the, the, the margins. But the models now can do that. So you can give every faculty member, every department has access to these models. You really want to be transparent, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, every department uh, has access to the, to the models for, for their department. Uh, and every dean has there for their schools and so forth. So now, basically, the whole conversation about resource allocation changes. Uh, and uh, your faculty, suppose you're a department chair and, and the senior faculty around you as, as advisors. The conversations you have with the dean informed by this model, by the, this, these data that I was just describing, uh, is going to be constructive. It's going to be saying, okay, look, uh, this program, this course is losing money, but it's important and therefore we have to find a way to pay for it with other courses that are more profitable. How can we figure out how to do that? These conversations, again, at every stage informed by, by, by these models uh, are going to be very different than the traditional conversations, the ones you undoubtedly had, I certainly used to have. Uh, namely, uh, the chair comes in, bangs on the table in front of the, the dean who bangs on the table in front of the provost. And basically, the conversation has to do with need, uh, importance, in other words. You'll learn wonderful words like ineluctable need, the sky will fall if you don't fund this thing for me. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and also political power. I mean, some mm. deans are more important than others. Some, what they typically are not about is the fine structure, how we can change maneuvers, uh, change the portfolio of courses and also programs, which we'll get to. Uh, in ways that solve the problem we all know we have. Namely, we have to close that budget gap. Uh, and believe it or not, uh, deans will work together on this if you give them the information. Uh, and uh, deans typically are competitive, rightly so. But I have actually sat in rooms full of deans uh, talking about model results. Everybody knows everybody's data. Uh, and they do engage in problem solving. And they engage in conversations amongst each other and with the provost. 
that are exactly the kind I'm talking about. Namely, mm. if we do this, it hurts the academy more than if we do that. Uh, and if both will go some distance toward solving our financial problem, well, let's do the one that hurts the academic the least. You know, that's it's elementary, my dear Watson. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the rule, the role that I see for faculty. They need to be full partners in these res academic resourcing uh, conversations. Those conversations need to be informed. They need to be transparent, uh, and it's by changing those conversations uh, that we're going to uh, get this problem solved. Yeah, boy, and you know, I'm struck by the word transparency um, because that you know, what you've just described is such a healthy uh, way to to operate. And uh, and yet, you know, I and I, I know you've you've been reading as well about some of the approaches taken. Um, uh, out of a sense of um, things being so dire, where presidents and senior leaders are are sometimes acting in a very top-down approach to solve the problem without involving the faculty, in some cases without involving the faculty at all. So what what you're describing is um, is just a it's a, a very healthy approach, but it it starts with transparency. Um, yes, obviously. it certainly does. Uh, and going back to that, the, the, the steps at the beginning, the first step is sizing the gap. Uh, that is kind of a top-down process because that's a financial analysis, not unlike financial analyses done in business firms, although the details are a little different. But faculty need to be uh, cognizant of that. They have to understand that there is a problem and, uh, and, and, and roughly you know, an agreement on the size of the problem. The first thing I did in this space at, at Stanford uh, was uh, uh, we were trying to get close a budget gap in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, Dave Hopkins, whom you mentioned, and I uh, built this model about the transitioning to a financial equilibrium. First thing the provost did was he convened a committee of faculty, senior faculty, uh, who uh, you know, people who could who were interested in that sort of thing. And they reviewed our modeling, they basically gave us a peer review and they came back and said, well, uh, we're not sure we would have made all the decisions exactly the way Bill and Dave did, but what they did was reasonable. We, you know, we can't agree on anything better. And, and we always said, give us a better idea and we'll do it. We'll, uh, and so that made a big difference. They stood up mm -hmm. in the academic Senate and they said, this stuff is for real. You mm -hmm. need to start there. And the yeah. other thing you need to, to do is that balance between the academic and the non-academic responsibility for gap closing. Uh, you mm -hmm. got to do both. You should have conversations involving senior, involving faculty uh, mm -hmm. about how much they need to understand that the administration is doing everything that can reasonably do on the administrative and support services budgets. Uh, and therefore that uh, what they're being asked to do is not, uh, is not unreasonable. If you do sure. those two things, then you get down into the conversations we were talking about just now about importance versus versus money. Now you've been a you've been a highly successful CFO. Um, this is a very tough role, although I don't know what role is not tough these days. Right? I think they're all tough. <laughs> right. But if if you were hiring a CFO in this environment, what kind of a person would you be looking for? Um, and and then could you just talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between the CFO and the provost and uh, the finance and the academic folks? Yes, absolutely. Uh, your CFO, first of all, the person has to have the basic skill set to be a CFO. That is, you have to be able to deal 
with financial stuff and you, there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't often think about outside the, the CFO office itself, but things like audits and control, financial control and, and, you know, and so on and so forth and, and, and investments. And, and uh, so you got to have that skill set, but you also have to have a very deep appreciation for the academic side of the university. And you have to understand that this is a not-for-profit, I'm talking about our kind of university, these are not-for-profit entities, getting somebody, getting a kick-ass kind of person in for business and saying, I'm going to make money for this institution and get out of my way. That's the, mm -hmm. what, the last thing you want. You do not want that. So you got to have somebody that, that, that has good interpersonal spill, skills and who uh, fundamentally believes in the academic mission uh, and is competent, technically. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, how does the provost and the CFO? Uh, well, I saw it from both sides. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I actually got to be CFO because I had made some, perhaps, well, a, a number of, let's say, pointed suggestions about how uh, the CFO function at Stanford could do better. And so, so when the CF, when the CFO left, the president came around and said, okay, Bill, put your money where your mouth is, put your life where your mouth is and, and get on with it. So we did. Anyway, the relation between the provost and me uh, during those, those years uh, was, was, was the following. The provost was the person who was responsible for deciding how the money is spent. Um, you know, I, as CFO, I, you know, I, responsibility for how it's spent in my department, but it was the provost who uh, was how much is spent on all of the functions, not just the academic functions, uh, because the administrative and support functions are there to support the academic functions. And so the levels of service provided to the academics uh, the, and so forth, uh, that's those are fundamentally uh, mission-driven judgments. So that's the provost at the end of the day that's responsible for how the money is spent. What the CFO is responsible for is how much money can be spent. Uh, and I used to joke with the board, Stanford trustees, about that. You know, I said uh, uh, the uh, uh, the provost's job is to spend the money wisely. My job is to see that he or she doesn't spend too much. <laughs> so, uh, but that that sounds funny, but it's true. Uh, provost will spend and should spend as much as as the CFO will allow them to spend. That's basically it. The reason is because when you spend money, you get program results, and when you get program results, that's what you're there for. CFO's yeah, yeah. got to say, look, if you spend too much, we're not going to maintain financial sustainability, and that we have to do. Yeah. I agree with you. I've been very fortunate as provost um, to have good working relationships with the CFO. And, you know, when you have that good relationship, it, it, every, everybody benefits, um, you know, but unfortunately I, you know, that's not always the case. I, I'm sure you. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it could be really bad uh, if, if it's a conflict, but a conflict, but it doesn't have to be, by the way, one last thought. Uh, about the relationship. When we went to the board uh, every year, uh, we'd go to the board, the provost and I, to prevent, pre pre prevent, present uh, the budget uh, for the next year. And it would start off and, uh, they, and I would have the floor and I would, I would describe how much money we had and the projections and the forecasts and, the, you know, and so forth, the market relationships and so on. Uh, and uh, uh, and the, a lot of interaction with the board on that stuff, of course. 
at the end of the day, they would ask just one uh, question. I mean, after many details, but the overriding question was, uh, are the estimates that are being used, we expect, we are holding you accountable to have the estimates being used for estimating costs and revenues and financial situation. Are they sound? And I had to say yes to that. Obviously, my job was to make them sound. Then they would turn, once they got that answer, they would turn to the provost uh, and say, okay, now how are we going to spend it? It was very clear. Mm -hmm. Which is, is as it should be. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And they knew that. So, so let me end here with a signature question that we like to ask of every guest who comes on the podcast. What do you see ahead for higher education that we all need to be paying more attention to? What needs to be on the radar right now and why? Oh, boy. Well, uh, yes, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> um, let me answer at a high level and then at a more of a nitty gritty uh, level. Um, high level, it seems to me that the colleges and universities in this country, and in fact, in the West in, in general, need to reclaim the high ground uh, about uh, education for citizenry. That is to say, give people and I'm not talking about any particular political point of view here, but give students certainly, first of all, a healthy respect for uh, the nature of society, for government, what it is, uh, liberal arts, understanding, empathy, and concern, uh, but in particular about the importance of evidence uh, and thinking clearly uh, and the importance of doing at least some things collectively. Uh, getting to being able to get together and do the and universities are well positioned. I think the best positioned institutions in society to do that. It's always been part of our mandate. Uh, but I, I think in the last four or five decades, uh, the the whole education for training for skills and abilities has tend to sub, tended to submerge it. It doesn't have to. It shouldn't, but it has. We have to reclaim that high ground. Uh, then the, the, at, the, at the more operational level, uh, we are going to have to figure out a way to do more with technology, more hybrid courses on campuses, for example. I still believe that we're going to want to have as many students on campus as we can reasonably afford to have uh, because you get something through on-campus experience that you don't get through online. Uh, and I'm a great fan of online. Uh, but uh, you get some of the campus matters. Uh, but even on campus, we have to be able to use technology to teach in a more effective and more cost-effective way. So there's a huge agenda of tightening up the process of teaching, getting rid of the, the, the waste, I'll call it that, uh, in course proliferation. We haven't talked about program rebalancing, but doing a better job of deciding how big our program should be uh, and, and more closely aligning them, aligning them to, uh, to what the market data are showing and so forth. So generally tightening up on the management uh, of the academic side, making it more evidence-based, uh, uh, more informed, uh, and, but also uh, using, doing more with technology. And I think there is a vast amount of, large number of things that, that we can in fact do I wrote about some of them in my re-engineering university. The new book doesn't have much of that in it, but there are many, many opportunities for doing that. We just have to get on with it. 
Indeed, and boy, what a great, great note to end on. Um, tell us, tell us what you're working on next or or right now. So you just finished the book. Yeah. Um, uh, and where can where can folks follow you or learn more about your okay? Work? Well, the, the 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 website uh, that you mentioned, WilliamMassey.com, uh, has a lot of this. You know, has stuff on it. Has links to other things. The book itself, of course, is available from Johns Hopkins, from Amazon, and so forth. Uh, what I'm working on now uh, is a, I don't quite know what to call it, maybe call it an infographics or something, uh, that I'm trying to put all of the things we're talking about, uh, right from the beginning, right through to where we just ended, uh, into a single uh, multi-page dynamic uh, infographics that people can learn on their own. I'm hoping to have videos with it and so forth. So a package, a learning package for university administrators and, and, and uh, faculty uh, that uh, uh, will cover all of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm fairly well along. I, I, think, mm. I think this thing is doable. Well, I just happen to know of a doctoral program that would be a, a uh, very uh, enthusiastic audience. <laughs> Well, some, I was hoping so, you would say that. So, so yes. maybe you uh, and I could talk. You and I could talk more offline. So. Let's uh, let's stay in touch on that. <laughs> thank right. you for well, having me today. Thank you so much. This has been just uh, such a rich and uh, a valuable conversation. And thank you for the work that you're doing to help all of us who are working on behalf of our institutions. Oh, and thank you, Melissa, for what you're doing as well. Both it's very it's very important. So thank you. Bye bye. Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with the visionary higher ed entrepreneurial leader, Dr. Greg Fowler. As president of Southern New Hampshire University's global campus, Dr. Fowler leads the academic functions in support of all of SNU's learning experiences and modalities a role that places him right in the middle of significant experimentation and innovation. According to President Fowler, higher education is never going back to the way things used to be before COVID. And even when students eventually do return to campus, colleges and universities need to be aware of all of the disruptions that are underway right now behind the scenes. Fowler suggests we need to be ready for what's coming next and help our campus communities be open to these disruptions if we want to help more of our learners be successful. Subscribe now to make sure you do not miss this inspiring conversation and Dr. Fowler's insights about where you can find opportunities for innovation, even in the midst of this current crisis. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.